0: We're going to have our Bible reading just now. We're going to read two chapters of Revelation this evening Revelation chapter 4 and 5, and Rachel Gamble is going to come and read that for us.
1: Reading is from Revelation 4 and 5, which is page uh, 1236 in the Pew Bibles. After this, I looked. And there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal, In the centre, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. (coughs) Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll, From the right hand of him who sat on the throne and when he had taken it the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints and they sang a new song you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood You purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the four living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped.
0: Well, if you have a a Bible close to you, let's uh, turn together to Revelation 5, really, we're looking at tonight. We want to read 4 because uh, these two chapters very much connect it. We're going to be referencing them uh, together a little bit, but 5 is where we mainly are tonight. Uh, Thanks to Peter for leading. John tonight is speaking in Kilkeel uh, at a youth mission. Ryan is uh, speaking at an SU, Armagh SU service in Armagh Cathedral, I think. And uh, uh, Peter this week is over at the Good Book Company conference on discipleship. That's uh, really important within the life of uh, youth work within the UK, so do remember him and that conference this week as uh, we pray for different people. Uh, So, Revelation 5, imagine yourself to be in a small church meeting, it's a Sunday morning perhaps, and uh, it's in 2,000 years ago, in in what today is modern-day Turkey, uh, end of the first century, and every believer who, who gathers has a story to tell of how the Lord Jesus Christ has transformed their lives. That's a common experience if you go into many, many churches across the world, isn't it? But also, nearly all of them have got stories to tell of how, for them, following Jesus has been really, really hard. So, perhaps one of them would tell you the story of how none of her neighbors would would serve her in the shops, and she has to walk clean across town to find a bakery that that will sell her bread. Another would tell you of how, when he was coming home from work one day, a gang of young people surrounded him and, and uh, called him a believer in this false Messiah, Jesus, taunted him, and eventually things got ugly. He got quite a beating as a result of that. All of the believers there would be able to tell you some story of how, for them, just following Jesus day after day was, was tough, and they had a sense that things were getting harder. And then on that day, on that Lord's Day, they come into the little gathering, back of somebody's home, and there's a a stranger there. He's introduced to them. He turns out to be a messenger, a messenger from the Apostle John, and he's brought with him a scroll, a a letter. And the pastor, the elders, they, they, they read this letter to the congregation. And they go home. That body of people go home that day just determined to live for Jesus because they they know what's going to happen. They know that God is in charge. They know why things are the way they are. And they are galvanized to, to walk with their Savior. And that's the letter that we have in front of us, a revelation. It was passed around from John, around uh, uh, these seven churches and, and copied, presumably, in each one and pondered over, but the letter goes around the, the district and ends up in our New Testament. We're getting back into uh, this book this evening. We, we were looking at it before Christmas, And uh, you remember that whenever we introduced it, we said, this is a particular type of literature that that we find more difficult to understand. Those people in the first churches in the first century, they would have found this much, much more accessible than we do. But it's perhaps two particular things that we we need to mention. It it is, first of all, a, a letter. It is there a from John he's in exile in Patmos and he he writes it in obedience to Jesus command it's sent around these seven churches in Asia Minor and uh, you remember that that before Christmas we, we saw that that one of the the common ways that the letters to the churches in here. We'll mention that in a moment. One of the common ways in which it ended was, to him who overcomes. And that's the, the, the burden of this letter. It's really to encourage those who are struggling to be overcomers. Christ has won a great victory, and if we give ourselves to him afresh, we will share in that victory. So, it's a letter. It's also an apocalypse. That's the word that we don't know so well. An apocalypse simply means something that is hidden, and uh, this hidden world is revealed through this writing. Apocalyptic literature is characterized by imagery and word pictures and symbolic numbers. So, the people who, who heard it, as we say, would have understood it much, much better than we do. We've got to work a little bit harder, The book is is divided into a number of sections. Each of them dominated by the number seven. You'd have picked that up even in the reading. There there are seven letters to uh, the the seven churches. There are seven seals. We're in that section now. There are seven bowls and so on. And and in general, the the, the book uh, shows the believers and uh, and us, of course, as well, uh, what this God is like and what this God is doing. And that's what's really needed for them and for us to keep going. They they need to see what God is like and what God is doing. And the book returns to those themes again and again, as if to say, you know, do you see what He's like? Do you see what He's doing? Now, you trust Him and live for Him this week, and you will overcome, and as you overcome, you'll share in His victory. Now tonight we're looking at, at chapter 5. Uh, before Christmas, Stafford looked at chapter 4, uh, and that vision is, is, is really runs right through chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7. And uh, uh, John sees in this vision, it's sort of different from the first section, uh, John sees God on the throne. Uh, he's beyond description. And, and so you see that, that John uses lots of Of like words, he he describes God. He's he's like this. He's like that. He's he's like these precious stones. But he's on the throne in heaven. In other words, he's in charge. He's king. There is a throne, and God is on it. He's ruling over all that he has made. And those believers in the the, those early churches who who were finding life so tough. And they wondered at times, I'm sure, as we do, don't we? Is there any plan? Is there any, is there any purpose to this world? It all seems so random and so broken at times. They're just reminded God's in charge, He's on the throne. So, that's one of the things that dominates chapter 4. And the other thing is, is worship. We're going to think a little bit about that tonight as well. But He is worshiped. There are heavenly creatures around God, presumably the cherubim, these four uh, creatures. And, and there are 24 elders, which you remember... Uh, Stafford said, represented the church under the Old and the New Covenants, uh, 12 tribes, 12 apostles, and so on. And, and together they're worshiping, they're bowing down, they're praising. So, so there's the burden of chapter 4. God is in charge at the center of heaven, at the center of the universe, uh, and He is worshiped. Well, John's conversion continues into chapter 5. And we're going to say, say three simple things just to sort of navigate our way through it. We're going to read it fairly closely and, and comment on it. But uh, three things that are pretty simple. Uh, Christ is essential. Prayer is integral. And worship is logical. I'm not just happy about that last title, but it's the best I could come up with. Christ is essential, first of all. So John notices, you see in chapter 5, verse 1, that in God's right hand there is a scroll a scroll that is written on both sides and is all sealed up. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides sealed with seven seals. Now, you can imagine a, a wax seal, you know, with that stamp on it, and it indicates that if a, a it, if it's sealing up a letter, that it's it's not that it's impossible to break open we know that we could easily break open a seal it's saying you've got to have the proper authority to break this open and uh, the scroll is sealed not only with one seal but with seven seals so seven is the sort of the perfect number it, it, it's it's perfectly sealed up so what's this scroll well it, it stands for the the plans of god the plans of god for humanity, for the universe, for the uh, ongoing work that he is doing within the world. You remember that we've said that Revelation is full of Old Testament imagery. There's a similar image of a scroll in Ezekiel chapter 2. That's also got sort of apocalyptic apocalyptic overtones, also one in Daniel. Later on in Revelation 10, John is told to eat this scroll, Uh, and uh, it's sweet to the taste, but it's bitter in his stomach. And that's probably an indication that, that God's purposes are both purposes of salvation and judgment. There's a sweetness and a bitterness to them. So, here are the plans for humanity, and they are sealed up tight. And in verse 2, the angel says, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Now, that's more than just asking who can read the plans of God. It's really saying, who can do them? Who can enact God's decrees? Who can take up the purposes of God and see them through? And nobody is found who can do that. No one is able to action God's plans. And John says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Now, just a couple of things that we should Notice there, first of all, just to say this, that the plans of God are full. They really are full. You notice that the scroll, that's the records of God's plans, uh, is written on both sides. That was very unusual for a scroll. You've seen scrolls, I'm sure, uh, seen pictures of them. Normally, they were only written on one side. Usually, it was hard to make a scroll that you could even think about writing on both sides off. But, but it was to underline, you see, that, that God's plans are not just a few simple headings. You know, you put your little to-do list at, uh, together for the start of the week. You know, some of you are doing that right now. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, done that. <laughs> uh, you, you put that little to-do list, but, you know, and it's just got some big, broad sort of titles. I'll, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this. But God's plans are not like that. They're not just big general headings. They're, they're, they're detailed. They extend to every detail of everything. And so for, for those believers, you see, who are, who are thinking, you know, is there any sense to what's going on in the world? This is saying, yes, there is. What you go through is written on both sides of this scroll. It's the detail of the plans of God. Now, I I know that's that's an easy thing to say. I know how hard it is to think that God has planned for all things, especially when we find ourselves going through really difficult things. But whenever we know that this God who plans and purposes and who writes fully on both sides of the scroll, when we know that He is good, and He shows us how much He is committed to us by giving us His Son, then we're hopefully able to say, Lord, I don't understand Your plans, but, but I'm, I'm going to hang on to You in the midst of them. And let's remember, too, that the alternative is terrible. The alternative is that we are cast adrift in a world without plans that all of our difficulties are then ultimately meaningless. None of our tears have any value. So the plans of God are full. That, that, that links us to the second thing, and that is that, that outside of the plans of God, there's only despair. You see that John thinks that, that There is a break in what God is going to do, that that God's plans are not going to get carried out. And what does he do? As he faces the prospect of God's plans not being fulfilled, he just weeps and weeps because John knows that the plans of a God, such as the God that he has seen, are good. And to miss out on those plans being fulfilled would be terrible. Outside of the plans of God, there is only despair. So, John is there. He's despairing. He's weeping. But then one of the elders says to him, one of those who, in a sense, represents the the church, those who've been redeemed, verse 5, says, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So, good news is announced by this elder. The lion of the tribe of Judah is able to do what no one else can. It's obviously a reference to Jesus. We know that. He is in the line of Judah. All of those genealogies at the start of the Gospels and so on, we know that that the line to Jesus passes through Judah. When Jacob blesses his sons at the end of his life in Genesis 49, he says of Judah, the scepter will not depart from Judah. Scepter, that Instrument of royalty, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until it comes to, uh, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations are his. And he's referred to as a young lion, a lion's cub. He's he's the lion of Judah. He's the root of David. So Christ is sometimes referred to as the offspring of David or the descendant of David. We know that's true as well. But here he's the root of David, so somehow he's ultimately the the origin of David's rule, the source of David's rule. So the elder says to, to weeping John, good news, the Lion of Judah, he can do it. Now, John's not seen the lion yet. He's been announced. Well, what do you expect to read next? We expect John to look and see a lion, don't we? We expect him to see some creature who has pictures of power and strength. After all, that's what we might imagine would be needed to enact God's plans. If no one in heaven and earth can be found who can do this, the one who can do it must be someone of of, of great power. Verse 6, then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the centre of the throne. So you see, John is expecting to see a lion, and he sees a lamb. He sees a weak creature, but it's sort of—it's worse than that because this lion, this lamb, is a lion—a lamb, sorry, a lamb that has been slain. It would have been a familiar sight for any Jew, wouldn't it? They, they would have seen lions. Or, oh dear, there's lions and lambs there. Hard to get them uh, separated here. But uh, he, they would have seen lambs uh, sacrificed at the Passover. They would have seen uh, lambs killed at, at the altar in the, in the temple. And, and here was just such a lamb with all the marks of sacrifice upon it. The, the Lion of Judah is the slain lamb, you see, and you, this is our Savior, isn't it? He, what does it say? He conquers through what? Sacrifice. Later, he will be seen as the conquering lamb, the one from whom people flee. But we see that he achieves his great universe-changing victory by laying down his life. It's that, you see, that that prompts the longest of these songs in verse 9, the song of praise in heaven. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign upon the earth. This is a song, you see, that tells of his work, the fact that he has being slain does something. It purchases men for God, people for God. And we understand it's not just people from a specific place or of a particular type, but people from what? Every tribe and language and people and nation. Some of you have traveled widely. You have never met anyone on the face of this earth who comes from a group of people that will not be represented in heaven. Isn't that amazing? Someone from every tribe, people, language, nation. The scope of Christ's work is so extensive. There are a couple of other descriptions of what John sees. The lion has seven horns. Now, this is why why we're not really supposed to draw this. We we picture these things, but, but they're they're sort of they're, they're shifting. They're nearly like videos rather than than particular paintings because the, the images sort of shift and so on. So the lion has uh, the, the lamb. the lamb has seven horns, and the horn is a symbol of strength in the Bible and in the ancient world as well. And here is a lamb, you see, with, with seven horns, with perfect strength. What does that say? Well, how does a lamb with perfect strength get sacrificed? Only willingly? Only if if he consents to lay down his life. That's what it says of Jesus, isn't it? No one takes his life from him. He would lay it down of his own accord. And, And the Lamb has seven eyes. And and the seven eyes, you see, are are identified with the seven spirits of God. It seems to be a reference to the Holy Spirit. But it's a point to say, you you know, this is a a lamb who through his spirit sees everything, knows all things, that there is nowhere in the earth where his knowledge and his understanding does not extend to. So, verse 7, he came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. See, he's saying, here's the one who can do it. No one can do it. But the Lion of Judah, who is the slain lamb, he can do it. Now, in a sense, what we've just seen here is is not particularly new for us. We, We know that this is who Jesus is, don't we? He is the one who overturns tables in the temple he's the one who welcomes little children. He's the one who says in the garden as he's being arrested, I am he, and the soldiers fall back. And he's the one who stretches out his hands and allows those soldiers to nail his hands to a cross. And we know these aspects of his character, even in our dealings with him, don't we? There are times whenever we are humbled by his splendor, and we just have to say, Lord, how, how could, like, like Peter, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. How, how could you have anything to do with me? You're so great, I'm so small. And then there are times when we are just enveloped by his love and accept. And you see, he is all of these things. He's the lion and the lamb. And and we need him to be all of these things. We need his wisdom and his rule as the the lion. We need his tender compassion as the the lamb. We we need him to fight against sin and evil, and we need him to deal tenderly with us as we fall. It is precisely this Jesus, lion and lamb, who is at the heart of of God's plans for history. For the world, for Brexit, for the church, for you and me, Jesus Christ is essential. Second thing, and and this is really just a, a detail, but prayer is integral it's integral a small detail in the story but but i think we do well just to pause on it for a moment when when the lamb takes the scroll there is a new wave of worship led by the four living creatures and the 24 elders who fall down before the lamb now you notice what they are holding verse 8 tells us this When he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, we're going to see later on that the prayerful cries of the martyrs, those who have died for their faith, of whom there are many the prayerful cries of the martyrs and the prayers of suffering saints play a role in the judgments that God makes upon His enemies. But what we see here is that the prayers of God's people are not only heard, but they're stored, gathered up, And and somehow they are used in God's purposes. Do you ever feel that your prayers aren't answered? Do you ever go to a prayer meeting and think, well, that was a waste of time? Well, look at this. They are heard and gathered. And and somehow, like, like incense, they contribute to the beautiful aroma of heaven. You see, what we cry for and ask God for, and and what we say to God on our own and together, Revelation shows us is is marvelously significant and never pointless. Our prayers are integral to the purposes of God. Eric Alexander is an old Scottish preacher. Listen to him on this, and and he, he said something like this. I didn't write down the quote particularly, but he said, you know, when all the books are open, when everything is finished, the things that will be seen as being most significant in the history of our world will not be the great summits between world leaders or not even the great meetings of the churches. They'll be the prayer meetings of God's people God's people have called upon God, poured out their hearts to Him, reminded God of His promises, cried upon Him to work. Prayer is integral. And then the last thing is is, is sort of worship is logical. Uh, worship is, worship follows was what I was trying to say. So, so, this whole vision you see in chapters 4 and 5 is, is really saturated by worship. There are five songs, you'll notice, in these two chapters. There's two in chapter 4 and then three in chapter 5. And, and you, you might notice that, that they build. They're like a, a great choir that starts off with just a few voices, and then others come in, and more and more, and it ends up with everybody just singing at the tops of their voices. So, let's look at this, chapter 4, verse 8, there's the four living creatures, these uh, cherubim, perhaps, uh, constantly singing, as Peter was saying earlier, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is to, is to come. And then, in verse, uh, and then in chapter 4, verse 11, the 24 elders, the church joins in. You are worthy, o our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. By your will they were created and have their being. And then in chapter 5, verse 9, the living creatures and the elders sing together. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals and so on. We looked at that. Then it really takes off in verse 11. Then I looked, John says, and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000, they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they sang, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. So the point there is not, of course, to, to do the calculations. You don't read Revelation with a calculator. It's a way of saying, this is a vast number. It's, it's greater than, than, than anyone could count. God is not miserly with his salvation. Do we know that? what a choir, but it's not complete. You see verse 13, then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. You see, this is where all things are going. All of creation that's a way of, of, of describing everything that there is, heaven, earth, under the earth in the sea, all of creation united in praising God. So, the, the, the constant praise that begins with the four creatures back in chapter 4, never stops saying those things, holy, 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 that constant praise is now taken up by all of creation Forever. Now, our forefathers in our catechism reminded us that our chief end, our central purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We, we get a taste of that down here sometimes, don't we? But one day, we will be part of the entire redeemed creation, worshiping the Lord. There's a, there's a sort of a hazy story that I'm reminded of when I think of this. It, it's a, of a man who saw three stonemasons long ago working, and one of them looked particularly grumpy, and he said to him, what is it you're doing? And he says, well, I'm just squaring off this stone. The next one didn't look all that much happier, and he, and he said, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm fitting this stone to, so it'll fit into an arch. And the third one was whistling. He was happy and content. And he said, what are you doing? He says, I'm building a cathedral. You see, the end to which we are heading, the end to which we are working, changes the realities of our day-to-day, doesn't it? And this Christian brother or sister, this is where we're going. So when, when you leave here and you enter your Monday to Saturday life and, and you make those hard daily decisions to live for Jesus in some of those places where Jesus has put you. Tricky family. Challenging workplace. Hostile world. And, and, and you're, you're saying to the Lord, as it were, Lord, help me just to to orient my life towards you and your purposes in this circumstance. I don't really know how to do it, Lord, show me. As as you're doing that, as you're seeking to worship the Lord in everything that you're doing, it is not in vain. As you call on him, your prayers are not wasted. As you worship him, you are tuning yourself for what you were made for you see our, our god he is he's not a sideline he's not a hobby he's god worship worship is logical let's pray together